This podcast is a presentation of Gateway Fellowship, Paulsville, Washington. Experience community, find hope. Check us out at gatewayfellowship.com. But Dr. Palmer um, is a lead pastor in Cincinnati, also teaches at Gordon-Conwell, and between he and Dr. Kaminsky, who was here a year ago, um, developed Casket Empty. And so we've asked David, we say, can you stay over and teach Colossians 3 at Gateway? And his schedule was open to do that. So would you welcome Dr. David Palmer today as he comes and to get your Bibles ready. So, yay. I'm so thankful you can be here. We, 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 have, we, I, we have connected so well. Um, Praise the Lord. You know, David's a runner as I am, and, and today we're going to play pickleball together. You know, I think pick, for your first time playing pickleball. First time, yeah. But I think it's going to be good. It's going to be good. I'm, pray, pray it's good. Yeah, yeah. Okay, pray right. it's good. We'll do it right there. So. Praise the Lord. It's an honor to be with you this morning. We had a wonderful time in God's Word yesterday. And I'm thankful to open the scriptures together this morning as we look at uh, Colossians. And this, in the midst of this series, uh, Locked Up, Not Out, I love that you've got the Greek text there on the one side of a papyrus manuscript. If you ever wondered what Colossians looked like when it was sent, it, was, it looked like that. It was pressed on paper. And I know that for many of us, uh, paper is an older medium but we use things electronically now. So I want to invite you, whether you have a print version of the Scripture or you have an electronic version, I want to invite you to find Colossians chapter 3 on whatever device you, you have. If you don't have a phone or a tablet with you and you don't have a hard copy of the Bible, then move close to someone uh, nearby you. Don't take, for, don't take it lightly that we have access to these words. We have access to the very Word of God when we open the Scripture. And when we look at the Scripture, every sentence, every verse, every chapter is life-giving because it shows us the voice of our Heavenly Father, reveals His identity, and it shows us who we are supposed to be. We discover who we are only in relationship to who God is. Uh, I was a college student, I'd been a Christian for just a couple of years, and I had a life-changing experience at the Falls Church in Virginia. I went, people said, there's this man named John Stott, he's going to be speaking. And came to the church, and the church was packed, and we found the only place to sit for us was in the church kitchen. I didn't even know churches had kitchens. And we sat crammed in the bottom floor of the basement and just looked at a speaker on the wall. Never saw John stop with my eyes, but I heard his voice. And he opened up the scriptures about the cross of Christ in a way that I'd never heard before, the centrality of the cross. And as he spoke, I realized that God's word is pointing me to him. And there's life found in knowing him. And I know myself And you know yourself only to the extent that you know your Heavenly Father. John Stott said this about preaching, about the moment that we're in right now. He said that preaching is to expound Scripture. It's to open up the inspired text with such faithfulness and sensitivity that God's voice is heard and His people obey Him. That's what this moment is about. This moment, whether it's me or, or, or the other pastors here and the teaching team, preaching is it's different than any other thing. 
It's different because when preaching is, is opening up this text, and whether you're looking at it in print or digitally, however you're encountering it, these words are the words of the living God. They are not human words, though they are expressed in human language. They are the words of Almighty God. And so these are the words that we must read, know, and listen to carefully. My job in this moment, and whoever's preaching, is to have a, a hidden season of preparation. Uh, our children, we have two children, Salome and Jonathan, and they both learned uh, piano from a young age. And it was great. We had two pianos in the house. So we had, uh, early on, we had, we had 5 a.m. practice at our house. One of these uh, uh, elder saints in our church told me early on, he said, as your kids get older, you won't be able to control uh, the end of the school day. So make practice like before the school day. And I thought, oh, this will be great. So we had uh, Beethoven going in the basement and Rachmaninoff on the main floor. And uh, it was fantastic. But I used to tell them, when people clap for you, and praise you publicly, I said there are at least 10 hours behind every public moment. And preaching, the preacher has a responsibility to look at the text closely so that we can hear it clearly. It's my responsibility and, and just full transparency, like I will be judged. And, and I feel that. Anyone who's preaching will be judged by God for what we say. So if there's anything I said yesterday or anything I'm going to say today that's not true, may the Holy Spirit just erase it from your memory. But to open the text in a way that we hear not the preacher's voice, but God's voice. And hearing his voice, that we would obey his voice. Uh, obedience is a cherished word for Christians. Uh, when I was growing up in a non-Christian home, the only time we ever used the word obedience was for the dogs. The dogs went to obedience school. And so I had this uh, disinclination to the word o obey and obedience. And now I've been a Christian for a few decades and I've learned to actually love this word. This is the ending of the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus says, whoever hears my word and obeys them. So Paul's great goal in, in ministry was to bring about the obedience of faith. So can we do that together? I'm going to ask God to bless us with a short prayer that we would just hear his voice and then obey what he tells us. Father, we honor you. We want to open your word and we want to hear your voice clearly this morning. Lord, speak to us and then Holy Spirit, come, reveal Christ and stir in us a willingness to obey what you tell us, Lord. Help us not to be enslaved to any other master, whether self, friend, culture, but help us to listen attentively to your voice and put what we hear today from you into practice. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, we're in a series uh, on Colossians. I say we because I'm part of the body of Christ. So I've met a lot of relatives that I didn't know I had uh, here in Seattle. So I've been really grateful because I've met brothers and sisters and aunts and uncles, uh, grandparents that uh, I'm related to in Christ, that we share a blood line, amen, that's actually closer than our uh, fam familial lines. We have a relationship in Jesus Christ, so it's been an honor to be here. And when, when they told me this, we're going through Colossians, and that week, will you preach Colossians 3? And I thought, oh, that's going to be fantastic. I was in Colossae this summer. 
And uh, Colossae, when you go to Colossae, it's in modern-day Turkey, and it's a great road sign as you approach Colossae, and you come up, and there it is, and you know you're in Colossae. And uh, as you get closer to Colossae, you're like, where's, where's the city? And you look up. When you get to the next, uh, you get close to the site, and you look up, and you see there's Colossae. It's just a large, grass-covered mound. That's what it is. Colossae is, in fact, one of only three New Testament sites that have not been excavated. So it's just a big, grassy hill. And when you look at Colossae from a distance, you can see the mound of the city. You see the mountains in the background. You see vineyards planted in front of the city. But when you hike up to the top of the city mound, you can see marble pieces from the New Testament city just jutting out from the ground. And it's yet to be excavated. But this is the city that Paul sends this letter to. He had never been there himself. And though the site has not been excavated, there's a tremendous amount of Christian activity in the New Testament that happens here. This is the city of Philemon, of Onesimus, who ran away from there. Onesimus was a fugitive slave from, from this city, and he fled to Rome. He met Paul, became a Christian, and Paul said, now, as part of following Christ, I want you to go back. I want you to go back. And he sends this letter in the hands of a man named Tychicus, which is the Greek word for luck, so Mr. Lucky. And Onesimus is a slave name. It means Mr. Useful. So useful and lucky head out with this letter. And they bear this letter to the church. And the heart of the letter of Colossians and the thesis of the sermon really this morning is that there's new life and that new life is found only in Jesus Christ. So let's look at the text together this morning. Colossians 3 begins with a theological vision of death and resurrection. Paul says that if you've been raised with Christ, then seek what's above where Christ is. There's a Christocentric view of reality that believers in Christ are to focus their attention on Christ, who is seated at the right hand of God. When you think of Jesus this morning, that's where you must see him. If we could see him as he is this morning, we would see him in radiant splendor, enthroned next to God the Father, receiving the glad adoration of all the nations, men, women, and children from every nation whom he has purchased with his blood, worshiping him and adoring him. And Paul says, look up and fix your eyes on Christ, because if you see him as he is, then you're going to live differently. Very, very differently. Set your minds on what's above, not on the earth. Now, Paul's not inviting us to think in terms of Platonic philosophy and some sort of two-tiered universe. He's saying that fix your eyes on Christ, seated above, resurrected, in verse 3, because you've died and your life is hidden in Christ. Central to the Christian view of reality and of discipleship is a death and resurrection. 
Those of you who were with us yesterday for Casket Empty saw that, that the scriptural narrative is rooted in the death and resurrection of Jesus. It's the controlling center of the Bible. Not just the events that secure salvation for all who believe, but the death and resurrection of Jesus is the template of discipleship. There's a dying and a rising. Our lives as believers in Christ are hidden in Christ. And so the, the dying is essential to the Christian life. Remember Jesus' summons, if you want to follow me, deny yourself, take up your cross. That's a dying image. And follow me. When I became a senior pastor uh, 12 years ago, I, I was terrified at the thought of it, actually. And, and, and if God calls you into ministry, you should be terrified. No one is sufficient in their own strength to speak for God. Whether you're called into ministry or leading a small group or a worship team, whatever you do, when you're called forward in Christ's service, it should strike a note of terror. And I ask godly people in my life, can I do this? And what advice would you have? And I met with a man whom I deeply love and respect and he'd thought about it deeply and he he had one word of advice for me. He said, practice self-denial. Practice that. Practice dying to self so that you can live in Christ. Dear friends, that's the first word of discipleship. The first word of discipleship is put to death what's earthly in you I mean find whatever is earthly in you whatever is part of the pattern of this world that you have shaped your life on however you got there figure it out identify it and slay it and we'll need something much more powerful than a fly swatter or a uh, 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 whatever that gun was that you had okay all right so we're gonna need weapons that are spiritual in nature to put to death what's earthly in us. In verse 5, he says, put to death sexual immorality. The Greek word is porneia. When you and I are, are tempted to exploit people around us in our thoughts and our actions, that's not life in Christ. Put to death impurity or passion, which in the New Testament usage of passion, I know we use that word in a positive sense. In the New Testament environment, passion is an inordinate desire for wealth, fame, success, approval of others, and that inordinate excess desire that we have to be noticed and seen, Paul says, kill it. That's not a light word. Kill it. Kill covetousness. You know, every time you look at someone else's things or relationship or zip code or status or their lawn or their house plants or whatever else you do and you look sideways and compare yourself to others and, and it rises up within us a desire to have what they have. Why do we do that? It's one of the Ten Commandments. Not to do it, but we do it. In antiquity, 
in the Ten Commandments, it says, you know, don't even covet your neighbor's ox. Now, I'm not going to ask for a show of hands, but you know who you are. Some of you are ox coveters. And, and you, you look over at your neighbor's ox and you think, I've got to have that ox. Remember that the ox is the, is the main working vehicle of the ancient world. And you look over and we register in our fallen selves that we'll be significant or our lives will matter if we have that. And that's not true. That's not where our identity comes from. Paul says, put it to death. Put to death covetousness, which is idolatry. Do you think of desiring what someone else has as idolatry? Paul does. Because when you you say in God's sight and hearing that I need this to be happy, it's a radical indictment of the character of God. The opposite of covetousness is thanksgiving and gratitude for what God has given you. He says, put these things away, anger, wrath, slander, obscene talk, just put it away, get rid of it. In verse 9, he says, don't lie to each other. Part of sometimes lying to each other is saying that these things aren't things we struggle with. And sometimes in church, we pretend to be better than we are. But actually, church is a safe place to say, yeah, that war is ongoing in me. And would you pray for me in my battle against my old self? Don't lie to each other. You've put off the old self with its practices. And here the passage makes a dramatic change. The death part, death to the old life, is now described as a taking off of a set of old clothes. Taking off that set of old clothes and putting on a new set. Take off the old self with its practices in verse 9 and put on the new self in verse 10. Put on the new self, he says, which is being renewed in the knowledge after the image of its creator. And this is so thrilling. This is the resurrection part. When you die to your old life, when you obey Jesus' summons, if you want to follow me, then deny yourself, which anyone who's grown up in this society knows that we've been encouraged to seek our own personal fulfillment in a myriad of ways. We get that message daily in thousands of ways. Happiness is found in self-fulfillment. Identify your desires and go for it. Find your passions and do it. And the gospel says, find your passion and kill it. (laughs) And we think, wait, what? But Jesus says, if you lose your life for my sake, you actually find it. And that's the risk of discipleship. Put off the old and then put on the new, which is being renewed in the image of its creator. And here, beloved brothers and sisters, Paul says, here in this place of people that have been found in Christ and renewed in Christ, he said, here there's neither Greek nor Jew, circumcised, uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ. It's all Christ. This set of pairings are ways that we tend to divide the world. 
in the, I live with Greeks. My wife is Greek and we speak Greek at home. So when we went to see the movie My Big Fat Greek Wedding, our family burst out laughing like three seconds before everybody else did. Because we, we heard the Greek jokes and then it just took that short second for people to read and then they laughed. But Greeks in the first century and even in the modern world tend to divide the world between Greeks and everybody who wishes they were Greek. <laughs> but you know, Greeks aren't alone in doing that. The ancient Babylonians gave us the first map of the world and it's a circle with Babylon at the center. China, I used to live in China, and China, the word for China is Zhongguo, which means the middle kingdom. So the map of the world in, in ancient China is a square with a line down the middle, which is China. So we always put ourselves at the center. Um, and Greeks or Jews, Paul says, the way we divide up the world in ethnic divisions doesn't matter. Circumcised or uncircumcised, you may be a religious or non-religious, you may have gone to church your whole life or you, this may be your first Sunday. That's not what matters. You may be a barbarian, uh, meaning, remember Greeks, this is a Greek word, barbarian. Greeks take great pride in their language and they regarded the languages of the rest of the world as basically everybody else in the world just says blah, 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 blah. And that's what the word barbarian means. It's a non-Greek speaker. It's an uneducated word. And Scythian, I don't know if we have any Scythians here at Gateway this morning, but Scythians are the ancient version of the ultimate savage people. And so you have the extremes. doesn't matter your ethnic identity. doesn't matter if you're a long time at church or first Sunday. It doesn't matter if you're highly educated or just brand new. Doesn't matter, slave or free, doesn't matter if you're a worker or if you're wealthy, it matters at Christ. This is a community where people are brought together through faith in Christ and they die to their old selves, they find new life in Christ. Amen? And you know, this is the only place in the world where that happens. Everywhere else you go, every other environment you're in will be divided in some way. Because we love to divide. It makes us feel like we matter and those people don't. But in Jesus Christ, we die to self. We are remade. I want to ask, how are we remade? And I want to introduce you, if you don't know him, to a brother in Christ. His name is Athanasius. He lived in North Africa and he was one of the leading thinkers of the early church. He was one of C.S. Lewis's favorite writers. And Athanasius wrote a little book called uh, On the Incarnation. And I read this book uh, every year or two. It was one of the first books of Christian theology I ever read, and it stunned me. And Lewis writes the introduction to it. You may know C.S. Lewis from the Chronicles of Narnia. And Lewis wrote the introduction, and he says that every age has its own outlook. It's good at seeing certain truths and liable to make certain mistakes we have to read books from other centuries to keep the clean sea breeze of the centuries blowing through our minds. Lewis recommends for every current book you read, make sure you read an old book too. Otherwise, you get trapped in the errors of your own time. Athanasius has a very vivid way of talking about how we are remade in the image of God. 
And he likens it to the restoration of a great work of art. When you think of uh, a great work of art, what comes to your mind? Many of us will think of the Mona Lisa. Uh, The Mona Lisa is valued at about $800 million. And yet, great art, even like this art, it can be stolen. The Mona Lisa was stolen. On August 21st, 1911, Vincenzo Perugia walked into the Louvre. He was an Italian patriot. He walked up to the Mona Lisa, took it out of the frame, rolled it up, put it in his coat, and walked out. He was upset as an Italian patriot that the Mona Lisa would be displayed in a French museum. He eventually tried to sell it and was caught. Art can be stolen. It also can be vandalized. In 1956, the Mona Lisa was damaged by someone who threw acid at the painting. In 1974, a woman sprayed red paint because she was upset about the limited access for people with disabilities at the museum. In 2009, uh, a visitor was distraught over being denied French citizenship, and so so she took the teacup that she had bought in the souvenir shop and she hurled it at the Mona Lisa. So now, when you go to the Louvre, the Mona Lisa is behind bulletproof glass. (laughs) And you really can't get that close to it. And people crowd from a distance and look at it. Art can be lost. It can be vandalized. It can be damaged. But you know, art can be restored. Sebastiano Piombo's famous painting, The Adoration of the Shepherds, had become severely damaged, almost unrecognizable. A 10-year project of restoration, 10 years, and the painting was restored. When my wife and I were on our honeymoon, we went to, uh, to Florence in one of the stops, and they were restoring the paintings on the ceiling of the Duomo of the cathedral in Florence. And so there was scaffolding hundreds of feet up, and there were guys on their backs hundreds of feet up on top of the scaffolding, minutely restoring the paintings. And we walked in, and I looked at that, and I, I, it's not that I'm troubled by heights, but I just couldn't imagine myself. I'm a pastor, a relational guy. Uh, I just couldn't imagine myself laying there for eight hours and just working on like a two-square-inch section. And my wife said, oh, that sounds wonderful. <laughs> You need people with those gifts to do that work. This painting was restored. And that's Athanasius's, back to Athanasius' great insight. He said that you and I are like the great artwork of Almighty God. And we become damaged, lost, stolen. And he said when the great art is disfigured, then God must send the original subject of the painting. He said, when a figure painted on wood has been soiled by dirt, it is necessary for him whose figure it is to come again. 
And in this way, the all-holy Son of the Father, being the image of the Father, came to renew the human being made according to himself. And Athanasius likens the coming of Christ to the original subject of the great work. He is the image of God. And we are renewed in him. And then as we look to him, some of us feel that we've been stolen this morning for someone else's gain. Some of us have been vandalized by an assault from the outside. Some of us, in an effort to preserve and protect ourselves, are locked up behind bulletproof glass. And yet I want to tell you from Colossians 3 that Jesus Christ, the true image of God, has returned to remake us in the image of God. We die to self that we might be alive in him. And so in verse 12, he says, put on then God's chosen, holy, beloved, three incredible adjectives. These adjectives are used in the Old Testament regularly of Israel. And now Paul generously describes all who believe in Christ as God's chosen, holy, beloved ones. That's who we are in Jesus Christ. We put on Christ, and as we put on Christ, we find ourselves with hearts of compassion, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience. We bear with each other. We forgive each other as the Lord Jesus has forgiven you. Above all these, put on love that binds things together. And let the peace of Christ rule in you. Let the word of Christ dwell in you. And in verse 17, he says, whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus. New life is found in Jesus Christ, only in Jesus Christ. And that's why that call to put put to death the old self, as terrifying as it is, because anger and greed and lust can can feel comfortable and familiar even though they're death dealing and when you put those things to death you find new life in Jesus Christ that new life begins to flow out and renew us and relationships around us whatever you do do it in Jesus and look to him The text in this chapter ends with a call to action to put new life in Christ in action in real life. And the ending of the passage, and that will be the ending of the sermon here very soon, is to put our new life in Christ into practice. Put it into practice in real ways. And Paul ends by describing three pairs of relationships or three spheres where this death to the old life and new life in Christ is to be lived out. The first one is in marriage, and it's the pairing of wives and husbands. Wives and husbands, as you look to Christ, then live out new life in Christ. Wives are to submit to their husbands, and I know that word sometimes seems terrifying to people. Submit, what does that mean? I don't know. Does that mean I'm nothing? Submit for Paul is a word that he uses for all Christians. Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Submission is the opposite of being in a hostile relationship. Wives are to be for their husbands, not against them. Wives are to relate to their husbands as they relate to Jesus. That's the key. 
Men, often when they hear this passage, wives submit to their husband, they get excited. They think, all of a sudden, I think I really like the Bible. Uh, this is going to be helpful for me. But whenever, whenever you're inclined to do that, just make sure you keep reading. Keep reading because husbands love your wives. Don't be harsh with them. Don't neglect them. Don't look down on them. And in parallel passages, Paul says that husbands are to love their wives as Jesus loved the church. So both husbands and wives, wives and husbands, have this death to self, new life in Christ, and marriage in a Christian setting is an exercise in living out my love for Jesus Christ toward my spouse. What would marriage look like if it was lived like that? How would we speak to our spouses and pray for them, serve them, love them, call them forward in faithfulness to Christ? The second sphere in verses 20 and 21 is in our family life. God creates us male and female. He graciously allows us to be married. He puts us into families and the pairing is now for kids and parents children obey your parents in everything this pleases the Lord I remember when our daughter was young and it was a real battle to get her to finish eating and I remember this one time we used to call it a happy plate and uh, we got so tired of waiting for her to finish and I finally just said Salome we're leaving we're just we're all leaving And you stay at the table until you have a happy plate. So we went on to the next thing. She came like 15 minutes later. And she she looked at, and I looked at her. She looked at me. And I said, honey, did you do it? I mean, did you really do it? Did you have a happy plate? Can I walk into the kitchen and look at your plate and see a happy plate? And she said, yes, daddy. You can come in the kitchen. Look at my plate. Just don't look in the sink. <laughs> and she had, she had grown tired of waiting. She got up and dumped all her food in the sink. And there was the happy plate. I said, honey, that's not exactly what I was looking for. Um, but I said, you, you got me on that one. But kids, obeying your parents is honoring to God. And parents have a reciprocal responsibility not to provoke their children and discourage them. This mutual relationship. The third sphere, maybe it's the hardest one of all. I think it's easy to love the person that you love. It's relatively easy to love inside your family. But the last group is really moving the church out into the world. It's work in society. And in first century language, the language of servants and masters is the language of really the worker and the the person who is running the company. And sometimes it's hard to know how to conduct yourself at work. All my years of pastoring and listening to people, it's a rare moment when I've heard people tell me how much they love and respect their boss. Being a boss is a hard thing. Being a manager is a hard thing. 
And the challenge for the Christian is not to work like the world works. My first job in my life was as a corn detasseler. Amen. Amen. That was hard work. I went through seminary working for UPS, unloading trucks in Boston outside from 2 in the morning till 8 in the morning. It was rare to have affection for the boss. And yet we're called to do our work, not for men, but for the Lord. And know that you serve Jesus. And being a Christian isn't an excuse for shoddy work. But then he says for those who are managers or supervisors, treat the people around you he says justly, the ESV says fairly in Colossians 4.1, the text says with equality. That's one of the first times we ever read that. So if you are working or if you are in management, you've got to live your faith out there too. So beloved friends, the call to discipleship this morning is to put to death the old self and find new life in Christ. And notice at the end that all of these calls and imperatives are expressed in the second person plural. You may be a grammar lover, you may not. You may have no idea what that means. I live in Cincinnati and when you cross the river and go over the Ohio River into Kentucky, there's a a huge water tower for the city of Florence in Kentucky. And they painted on the top of the water tower, um, Florence Mall. And it, because they had a huge mall there and they wanted to advertise. And the guys who built the mall were like, perfect, there's a water tower that everybody sees from the highway and we'll just paint Florence Mall on it. They didn't check with the local municipalities and the local municipalities said, "You you can't advertise on a water tower. So you can't have that up there. And they weren't sure what to do. So they'd already painted Florence and they already had mall and they didn't want to spend too much more so they just repainted the front and now it says Florence, (laughs) y'all. That's what it says. So so all these imperatives in Colossians 3 are y'alls. Meaning you can't live it out alone. Christian life isn't meant to be lived alone. You can't put to death your old self by yourself you need brothers and sisters to walk with you and may the new life that's ours in Jesus Christ be lived out at gateway and may we joyously hear God's word and obey it put to death the old and find new life in Jesus your life is hidden in Jesus who died and rose again amen let's pray Lord Jesus we honor you We thank you for your word that's alive in our hearing and we ask you to bless us today. We pray, Lord, that you would help us as a community to to slay that which we have learned apart from you. And we ask, Lord, that as we deny ourselves that we might find our life hidden in Christ, that you would make us alive in you and you would stir in us and create in us new desires Help us to live for your glory and help this community, Lord, reflect your glory in this city, in this region. 
And we pray, Lord God, that the church would reflect the new recovered humanity that is ours in Jesus Christ. Thank you, Lord, for recreating us and remaking us as your lost masterpieces. We are recreated in Jesus Christ, the image of the invisible God. In his name we pray, amen. Amen, amen. Let's give the Lord a hand again, shall we? <laughs> amen.